0: As I was thinking about the uh, the message this morning uh, songs from a lyric uh, lyrics from a song that uh, I confess I hadn't listened to for a while kept coming to mind and some of you here will recognize these right away trash or treasure treasure or trash you must decide between the two Trash or treasure, the giggles are the folks who recognize the songs. Trash or treasure, treasure or trash, you must decide between the two. Those were the, the lyrics from a classic song from the Billions on their 2005 CD titled Trash or Treasure. It really is, it's a cute song, you'd like the song. But it's a great, the whole concept, is it a trash or is it a treasure? It's a big deal. It's a, it's a great concept. We've been getting rid of things. Uh, you know, the girls left and we're sort of going through the house and getting rid of things we don't need. And so we've got stuff in the garage that to me at this point, it's trash. I have no need of it. I don't want it. I want to get rid of it. So to me, those things that used to be useful, they're trash. Now to somebody else, like when the Salvation Army came along and they picked up some things for us, you know, to somebody else, those things that to me are trash will become a treasure because there'll be things they need. Maybe they don't have the money to buy or whatever or get at a cheap rate or whatever. But for them, those things will be a treasure. So sort of subjectively, it's, is it a trash or it is it a treasure? And, and I'm deciding which it is. That it's trash, it's of no use, it's a treasure. Man, I really like that. That's entirely subjective, though, isn't it? It sort of raises the question, are there things in life that are inherently trash or treasure? That is, it's subjective for me to say I decide between the two, isn't it? I decide if something's trash or treasure. But is it possible in life that there are some things that are inherently valuable in and of themselves, because perhaps someone has said that they are. Someone, something has given them inherent worth, whether we choose to recognize that or not. Larry McFaul did a great job last week introducing a four-part series we're going through in May, going over the Manhattan Declaration. And I'm not going to go into the front-end introduction. I would just advise you to you can go to the Lion and Lamb website. Steve just mentioned you can listen to Larry's teaching there, an introduction on the Manhattan Declaration, but we're in week two of that declaration this morning with the emphasis on life. And the Manhattan Declaration, briefly, was a way for Christians in our time and in our day, and in the culture that we're in, sort of reminding ourselves in the world we live in that there's a line in the sand that has to do with values and what's important and what has inherent worth and value. And those things that we want to say, we are for these. We recognize the worth. So we're looking at issues related to life. Having said that, specifically, we're looking at issues in our culture that tend to work against life. We're looking at some things in the Declaration like public policy, politics, cultural outlook, values, and and frankly, technology as well. As we talk through these issues this morning on life... uh, I would ask your patience and your forbearance a little bit. Some of this, I love to teach through the Bible. Topical messages are not my preference. And topical messages may not be your preference either. And when we're talking about things like life and challenges to life, abortion and other things, you might feel like you don't want to hear this at church on Sunday morning, perhaps. Or you may feel convicted about one thing or another as we talk about these, these things this morning. So just related to the content, if you say, I really don't want to hear this or I disagree with your conclusions or the Declaration's conclusions, I just say, be patient, take your notes, go back when when we're done talking about these things, search the Scriptures. That's the bottom line. That's the standard. And see for yourself, what does the Scripture say about these same issues? We'll talk about some of the Scriptural content this morning. But be patient. Take your notes. Look these things up later. Also, in almost any church group or any group of any size, when we talk about things like abortion, you're talking to people who've had abortions, some of them. Or you're talking to people who've pressured someone else to have an abortion or paid for abortions. Or, in this issue of life we're talking about this morning, it's not just about the unborn and infants. It's also about euthanasia, the elderly, the handicapped. So when we're talking about life issues, we're really talking about all of life, the full spectrum of life. So if you've had an abortion, it's a big deal. And you know it's a big deal. We confess those things to God and the blood of Christ cleanses us from those sins. And we're good to go. And as we talk about these things this morning, if you feel convicted again about something that was an issue in the past that you've dealt with between you and the Lord, you're good to go. If something comes up this morning in the discussion that triggers something in your mind that you're either dealing with now or it's, it's a memory of something in the past that hasn't been dealt with, then accept that conviction from God because that's something He wants you to make right with Him so that you can enjoy life, fullness of life, by the way, which is a verse that comes up here later. So be patient. Your forbearance is appreciated. If you're convicted about something that's been settled in the past between you and the Lord, just listen. If you're convicted about something that's still up in the air for you, talk to the Lord, talk to any of the leaders in the church about that. But forgiveness is what Christ came to give us, and so we're not, no one's trying to heap condemnation on anyone this morning, certainly we want to talk about life. The Manhattan Declaration lists some of the elements in our culture that tend to treat some human life with less care and respect that each life declares. If you've got a bulletin, you've got a handout, and I'm going to read through portions of this just so we have context. Not all of it. The, the highlighted or bold sections in your handout are what I will read this morning. In parsing this or editing what I'm reading, I'm not trying to make anyone look better or worse. I'm just trying for clarity's sake to make this a little bit more brief. It declares under the section for life... Although public sentiment has moved in a pro-life direction, we note with sadness that pro-abortion ideology prevails today in our government. Majorities in both houses of Congress hold pro-abortion views. The Supreme Court, whose infamous 1973 decision in Roe v. Wade stripped the unborn of legal protection, continues to treat elective abortion as a fundamental constitutional right. The president... Moving ahead, has also pledged to make abortion more easily and widely available by eliminating laws prohibiting government funding, requiring waiting periods for women seeking abortions, and parental notification for abortions performed on minors. The elimination of these important and effective pro-life laws cannot reasonably be expected to do other than significantly increase the number of elective abortions by which the lives of countless children are snuffed out prior to birth. A culture of death inevitably cheapens life in all its stages and conditions by promoting the belief that lives that are imperfect, immature, or inconvenient are discardable. For example, human embryo destructive research and its public funding are promoted in the name of science and in the cause of developing treatments and cures for diseases and injuries. At the other end of life, an increasingly powerful movement to promote assisted suicide and voluntary euthanasia threatens the lives of vulnerable elderly and disabled persons. Around the globe, we are witnessing cases of genocide and ethnic cleansing, the failure to assist those who are suffering as innocent victims of war, the neglect and abuse of children, the exploitation of vulnerable laborers, the sexual trafficking of girls and young women, the abandonment of the aged, racial oppression and discrimination, the persecution of believers of all faiths, and the failure to take steps necessary to halt the spread of preventable diseases like AIDS. We see these travesties as flowing from the same loss of the sense of the dignity of the human person and the sanctity of human life that drives the abortion industry and the movements for assisted suicide, euthanasia, and human cloning for biomedical research. And so ours is, as it must be, a truly consistent ethic of love and life for all humans in all circumstances. If you and I wrote this today describing sort of the condition of the culture, we might write this a little bit differently, but I confess this this pretty well and succinctly brings up the issues that work in our culture that work against life. This issue we're talking about is life, but these are the elements in our culture that work against life. We are willing to kill one person in order to heal another. We're willing to give one person a choice by removing all options of choice and life from other people. There's a couple movies, as I was thinking through this, that come to light, n- neither of which, as I'm thinking about it, were made by Christians or necessarily for Christians. One is called The Island. How many here have seen The Island? It's a great movie. And if you're thinking about bioethics and cloning and where a thing leads, The Island is a great movie. And you realize that it it sort of draws draws this idea out to its furthest parameter, if you will, by showing fully grown, cloned human beings who are actually just living, breathing, walking parts stores for their original owners. And that sort of it, it does a nice job of, of illustrating this thing of we're using people as parts, thinking of genetics and cloning. Thinking biblically, too, you can't read the scriptures and fail to see that God values life, one, he's the God of life, and two, that he holds us accountable for how we treat others and especially the least among us, we'll look at the least among us in just a little bit, but let me just turn to Isaiah 1. This will be a little bit Bible-like this morning, I confess, but we'll talk through a couple of passages. Isaiah 1, verse 17. When God talks to the nation of Israel in Isaiah's day and indicts them, one of the indictments is this: He says, Learn to do good, meaning they're not, seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. The ruthless would be those who are taking advantage of those that couldn't oppose them. Defend the orphan and plead for the widow. Now, in the language of the Bible, the widows and the orphans are the most vulnerable people in society. Widows and orphans legally had very little recourse if someone took advantage of them, the ruthless. Widows and orphans are the epitome of the defenseless in our midst. And so when God indicts Israel, he says, you need to reprove the ruthless, speak to those who are taking unfair advantage of others, you need to defend the orphan, and you need to plead for the widow. You need to take up the cause of the most defenseless, vulnerable people in your culture. Same chapter down at verse 23, he says, your rulers are rebels. And companions of thieves, everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. Your rulers do not defend the orphan. They don't, nor does the widow's plea come before them. God says the rulers, those who oversaw the nation, were responsible to look after the interests and the welfare of the most vulnerable. And he says they are not doing it. Guys, that's the United States today. And by the way, when we talk about pro-life this morning... Don't just think of children. We're talking about life issues in general. And when we talk about this, this isn't just the United States. This is the world. And you know, we're a little slow on the curve. If you view Europe today, that's where we're going. We tend to follow. The United States leads the world in some influences, and we take from the world in others. And we generally follow Europe. And Europe's a lot further down this, this path in the pro-death uh, ethics than we are, but that's certainly the direction we're heading If you read, and I've done this, if you read through the Old Testament prophets especially, when God indicts Israel, we're aware that a lot of times it's over issues of idolatry. They've made idols, they've made a statue, and they're bowing down and worshiping something that isn't God. But guys, the other thing you'll be struck by if you look for it is this, that about half the time God indicts Israel, it's for the way they've treated each other. Uh, if you're liberal in your religion and politics, terms like social justice that might be in part of your vocabulary, conservatives tend not to use them. But the way we, because of political, uh, because of the political implications, but the way we treat each other in the Old Testament prophets especially is a key indicator of what we think of God and whether we or not we embrace His values. Those despised as being unfit or unworthy of consideration are actually barometers of how sick or how healthy a nation is, how much or how little we reflect God and His values. That's what we get out of Isaiah. Also, in Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25, this is called the law of lex talionis, the law of reprisal. What I find interesting is this. If Most people have heard a biblical phrase called an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it's generally said in a way that those Christians, those religious people, they're really um, aggressive and they're vengeful because they say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You know, we're going to get our revenge. Well, actually in context, Lex Talionis said, you can only do what's just. If someone took out your eye, you can't take off their head. Lex Talionis was meant to limit reprisals. It was meant to keep things from escalating. In the Middle East, think about that. I mean, this was a big deal. We're limiting vengeance. We're not requiring justice by an eye for an eye, but we're limiting it to that. Now, the interesting thing to me about Lex Tal- Talionis is where it's located in the Torah. Exodus 21, 22 through 25 is about a woman carrying an unborn child. And that's where the law of lex talionis is set. A woman's pregnant. Two men fight. They strike her. She delivers prematurely. The text says if she delivers prematurely and there's no other harm, the husband can require the aggressor to pay a fine. She was injured. She delivered prematurely. The baby might have some minor issues, but generally everything's okay. But if the baby in the womb is harmed... It's an eye for an eye. The reason I bring this up is, Exodus says the baby in the womb is a person with legal rights. By God's view, in the law, the law of lex talionis, which is applied far beyond this context, the example is an infant in the womb. It's the most defenseless person on the planet. God could have said a widow or an orphan, but he said an infant in the womb. That's the setting Of the law or lex talionis. If you read a passage like Psalm 139, you know it's this great chorus by David about how God was with him in the womb, knitting him together, personhood in the womb. Some of God's servants, I'm thinking of Jeremiah and John the Baptist, they're called while they are in the womb. John the Baptist responds with joy when the Messiah in the belly of his mother comes into the same room as his mother. These are in the womb, persons in the womb. Thinking of the elderly, uh, Proverbs sixteen thirty one, a gray head is a crown of glory. It is found in the way of righteousness. There's a couple other verses which I didn't include here. But in the Old Testament, long life, old age, was seen as a reward from God. And so those with gray hair, those who were the eldest among their culture, were seen as favored to be respected, not to be written off. And compare that to the value our culture has as today so from the beginning of life in the womb the scripture affirms that's a life it's a person with value protected in the old testament by god's law to the oldest in our culture seen as blessed by god and deserving of respect and value inherent intrinsic value least to the greatest youngest to the oldest in john 10:10 which is quoted at the beginning of this section on life Jesus said, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. Our Savior, Jesus, is after life, and yet, more often than not, perhaps, public policy, politics, cultural values more and more promote not life, but death. The Declaration doesn't stop at describing the problem. That that would be helpful, perhaps, but it goes on to a call to action, By the way, some of what I'm quoting is not um, uh, in the order that it's presented there. Under the call to action, they say, We call on all officials in our country elected and appointed to protect and serve every member of our society, including the most marginalized, voiceless, and vulnerable among us. We will be united and untiring in our efforts to roll back the license to kill that began with the abandonment of the unborn to abortion. This would be called action in the political arena. We will work as we have always worked to bring assistance, comfort, and care to pregnant women in need and to those who've been victimized by abortion, even as we stand resolutely against the corrupt and degrading notion that it can somehow be in the best interest of women to submit to the deliberate killing of their unborn children. This would be support of places like CPO and women in their times of need and their children. Our message is and ever shall be that the just, humane, and truly Christian answer to problem pregnancies is for all of us to love and care for mother and child alike. A truly prophetic Christian witness will insistently call on those who have been entrusted with temporal power to fulfill the first responsibility of government to protect the weak and vulnerable against violent attack and to do so with no favoritism, partiality, or discrimination. This would hearken back to Isaiah 1. The Bible enjoins us to defend those who cannot defend themselves, to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. The writers didn't include this, but I'm assuming this is a reference to Proverbs 24, 11, and 12, which we'll look at in just a minute. They continue, and so we defend and speak for the unborn, the disabled, and the dependent. What the Bible and the light of reason make clear, we must make clear. We must be willing to defend, even at risk and cost to ourselves and our institutions, the lives of our brothers and sisters at every stage of development and in every condition. By the way, this last phrase, defend even at risk and cost to ourselves and our institutions, This might sound exaggerated in the United States today, but I I don't think it's unfair to say it will be risky for Christians uh, to stand up for life, more so in the future perhaps than it is now, as it is also in Canada, parts of Europe already. Larry gave examples last week of the costly involvement for life when he talked about the Ten Boom family in World War II. And in fact, if you're familiar with that story... It cost the Ten Boom family their liberty, their property, and the lives of at least her sister and her father. So as we think about this and think about implications for our own lives for the future, this may sound exaggerated at this point in time. There's a good chance it won't be exaggerated for us in the not-too-distant future. When we think today about what we can do as Christians on the earth to be pro-life, for life in all its vast context. These are some of the things I came up with. You might think of others. One is this. It's to vote for life. To vote for life. I'm not starting with the political arena because I think it's the most important. At some level, I think it's the least important. But we live in a place in which we select our leaders. And the political arena is an important one and it's not to be neglected. I think we'll give an account because we live in a, democratic republic for how we promoted life and christ's cause in politics most elections we choose between candidates who are more or less pro-life i believe christians by the way i say this unapologetically as i say some of this will be opinions you may totally disagree with me i believe christians should be voting for candidates who are most pro-life i confess i am incredulous when I read the polling data that follows elections on how many Christians vote for totally pro-abortion candidates. I can't get over this. And if you're in that, if you're in that group, uh, I sort of hope I offend you in just the right ways. Um, the, the case for government, that government is only here to defend us. That's the most basic cause of government. Everything else is sort of gravy. Government is here to protect those who can't defend themselves. So when we vote for people that we know say it is okay to take the lives of those who can't defend themselves, guys, this is at odds with our best interests. And it is at odds with the very concept of government to start with. So if you're voting your pocketbooks, if you're voting your jobs or anything else, you are not voting God's values. God is for life. Jesus came, he said. That we might have life and have it abundantly. And Jesus cares about the least to the greatest. When we go to the polls and we're not voting for people who support life, not just pro-life related to abortion, for people and for lives, and people who are going to say, as government officials we respect life in all its forms. I'm thinking, what are we thinking the least we can do, it costs us nothing to go into a polling booth and vote for someone who says they support life. In my view, sorry, my view, this is the least thing we should be doing. The Kansas legislature, if I've got my facts right, this last week failed to pass by one vote in the Senate, a measure that, simp- that among other things, would simply have allowed the state's laws, currently on the books related to abortion and follow-up, with doctors in their offices, to be, to be followed. It, it didn't pass by one vote in the Senate. Now, this legislation impacts people's lives. And so for that reasons, it's important. Legislation may not change hearts, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But legislation does impact lives, and it's an important thing. And when we vote for people who support life, this is at least, it's an easy thing, guys. It's sort of, to me, a no-brainer. So, in the political arena, we can certainly at least vote for those who say they will support life. By the way, too, I know that in some races, uh, you might have two pro-life candidates. And so, that's why, in my mind, I'm voting for the most pro-life. I might have two pro-abortion candidates. This is a judgment call, but I would still vote for the most, the one closest to the for-life agenda, rather than the one furthest away. Some Christians will say... And I have in the past. I'm not going to vote for anybody who's pro-abortion. I would Sometimes it is the lesser of evils. And I think if we can get the lesser of an evil in at times, that seems to be a shrewd thing to do. Another thing we can do is we can speak up. Letters to the editor. It's sort of a, not quite a bully pulpit, but it, certainly it's a, it's a venue that we can, and as Christians, should be taking advantage of. Letters to the editor. We can pick it and join in peaceful demonstrations calling for the protection of all people. Um, we did that with our little kids when our girls were small. We, I still remember this, and I know it made an impact on them when we would uh, march around a hospital that was conducting abortions and say, this is not a good thing. This, we're supposed to heal people here, not, not take their lives away. My girls still remember this. We can talk to friends, family, and co-workers as we have opportunity, that we support life, that with Christ we think abundance of life is what God's after, so we can speak up. We can also serve. Again, these are my examples. you probably come up with many of your own. We can volunteer at CPO. Many here do. We can offer our homes as a place for women to carry children to term. Or to bring in people who are too old to live on their own anymore. That's a novel idea, isn't it? Respect and caring for the elderly. We can visit nursing homes. We can adopt children who otherwise won't have a loving family. We know a little bit about that in this group, too. There are things we can do, support-wise, on a practical end. Also, we can support books, movies, people that are supporting life. So Ken Camille sent out an email just this week about a movie that I think has just come out called Babies, and I went and watched the trailer. It looks great. You know, this is from a French guy. I don't think this is supposed to be pro-life, but that's the impact. It looks at women who want families, and they get these babies, and it... Shows these little little babies, mostly girls, I guess, growing up. It's a good thing. We're supporting where we can, financially, buying movie tickets, buying books, those who are supporting life. The world, post-World War II, you know when the fullness of the atrocity of what had occurred in Germany became known? You know when our troops went into to Germany, when the Allies defeated Germany, they couldn't believe what they were seeing. They were not prepared for what they would find in these camps that they liberated. They had no idea. The Allied troops. And when the immensity of what had occurred in Germany, under German government, and under the nose of the German people occurred, the, right, the world rightly condemned the German citizens, most of them for standing by silently, while their neighbors, the Jews, were shuttled to death camps and exterminated. We don't look back and say, oh, those guys, they protected their lives. They lived to fight another season. We say, where were you? What were you thinking? There are stories of Christians in churches who sang louder on Sunday morning to praise Jesus, to drown out the calls of the Jews in the cattle cars on the tracks outside their churches. Guys, this should not be. This should not be. There's another movie, the other one that I mentioned to you earlier, the Boy in the Striped Pajamas. How many here have seen this one? It's a great, it's a great movie. Again, I don't think the folks who made this, I, I don't think they were Christians. I don't think this was a pro-life message, but boy, it is because it shows what convoluted thinking is required to justify in your mind making some other human less than human so you can do to them as you will. And it also shows the outcome, the unhappy but oftentimes inevitable outcome, of what happens to those who treat others as less than human, what happens to them and their families. The last thing is this. What can we do? To be for life is to pray. And I don't say this last because it's least important. I saved it to last because it's most important. You know, in some issues, you may may be able to convince someone else that your point of view is right. But you may find people intractable in other areas. And the truth is, one human being cannot change the mind and the heart of another human being if they don't want to change it. No, no person has that power over another person. But God does. And so when we're talking about the ideas and ethics and ideas that have consequences, we're talking about people's minds and hearts. And guys, the place we start all this is prayer. It's not lamb not lambasting someone else, it's prayer. We pray. Proverbs one: The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Praying for kings and those in authority, praying that God will change minds and hearts, is where all Christian action, calls to action, should start. This just makes sense. We don't have power, but we know someone who does. We go to them and we ask them to intervene. If the cause of life is a battle, and it is then it's a spiritual battle. It's not primarily and foremost a physical or material battle. It is a spiritual battle and we need to fight it on the front end and the back end in prayer. We do have a responsibility as Christians, as the body of Christ on the earth today, we do have a responsibility to do what we can to love our neighbors who happen to be either in the womb, in the test tube, or in the nursing homes. Proverbs twenty-four, eleven, and 12. By the way thinking of Germany in World War II, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of that concept here. Rescue, God says, those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we didn't know about this. Sorry, Lord, we didn't catch that. We missed it. Does he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what He has done. God says we're to intervene for those being led away to death in the ways we're able to. Jesus warns us not to stumble, little ones, Matthew eighteen eighteen six. He says in Matthew 25.40, which I'm pulling out of context, I'll grant you, but the point is still valid. Uh, How did we treat the least among us? In Jesus' kingdom, that's the criteria by which people enter his kingdom in future days. It was how they treated the least among them. In saying all this, um, sometimes we can be overwhelmed by the size of an issue, and it sort of immobilizes us because we feel like the issue is so big we don't know what to do. Any one of us, the the interaction we have in the cause of Christ for life, for abundant life, for all, it's going to vary from person to person. And so if you're sitting here thinking, I didn't pick it, I feel guilty, or I didn't vote in the last election, all all of our interaction as a church, as individuals, it's going to vary because God uses us all in different ways. So as you think about life and advancing Christ's cause in the arena of life in general, just ask the Lord, Lord, what does that look like for me? As a church, we support the national and the local pro-life groups on a monthly basis. We have folks that volunteer at CPO. I mean, we've, we do some of these things currently. But as individuals, just, Lord, what's your role for me in this arena of life? I wanted to mention, just related to underlying causes, <clears throat> we do live in a trash or treasure kind of a world. Ultimately, we'd say it's because people don't know Christ, and I agree with that. And part of that is we have jettisoned the concept as a culture that there is what's called ultimate or absolute truth. If there's no absolute truth, then it really is a trash or treasure world we live in because it's subjective. And the value of everything depends on what value I subjectively give it. And then everything's up for grabs. Anything's up for grabs and everything's up for grabs. But if there's truth with a capital T, that is, if there's truth that's always true for all people at all times and all places, then you and I don't ascribe value to someone else. They have it. If someone gave it to them, someone being the Lord, they have that value, not because we choose to say they do, but because they do. You think of the founding of this country, when the founder said there are unalienable rights, that assumed that there was a creator who gave those unalienable unalienable rights that even the state could not take away. The state was not God to the founders. God was God. And God gave rights and value. The Manhattan Declaration opens its section on life by quoting Genesis 1 in the creation account, verse 27, So God created man, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. When you read Genesis 1, the value that an individual, a human being on the planet has, is given them by God because he made us his image bearers. God stamped us with value. We're not an animal, not like any of the other animals on the earth. He stamped us and he said, you're my image bearers. And uniquely of any life on the earth, you're the ones that I've said, I'm going to have intimate, close personal relationship with so in the creation account the folks that wrote the declaration got it right our value comes because God gave us value in the act of creation and making us his image bearers but think of this too when Jesus came to the earth in the incarnation then God became a human being God became a human being if you don't think the individual has value God is human Jesus is eternally human. Every human being has value from creation. Every human being has value because Jesus is a human being. God took on flesh. Fully God. Fully man. Take that a step further. Why did the incarnation happen at all? Because God became man, goes to the cross, to die for the sins of His image bearers. The least to the greatest. So that their fellowship with God in heaven can be restored. So you've got this affirmation of the value of each individual on the earth. Again, creation, the incarnation, and Jesus' death and resurrection for us to glorify the Father by redeeming his image bearers. These things all attest to the value of each human being and to mankind in general. We don't determine that another person is trash or treasure. God has already said, Each and every one is a treasure by his doing, not by ours. It's up to us to recognize that. Trash or treasure is not up for debate related to the value of an individual or to mankind in general. God's already settled that question. We have intrinsic, inherent value before the creator of the universe. It's up to us to recognize it. Let me wind down by saying this. The greatest pro-life policy you and I can have is this. It's to proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us to life. It is to tell other people about Jesus Christ, their need, and his provision. The gospel is the most pro-life thing, message, you and I can share. Everyone who's born on this earth, they're going to live for a season... And die, unless the rapture comes. And we're looking for the rapture. Rapture aside, everyone who's born on this earth will live for a season. Some of those seasons will be very short, some of those seasons will be comparatively longer, but will die. So, guys, at the end of the day, the issue really isn't about just the things that go on on this earth, the issue really is where are we going? And who do we belong to? And in eternity, do we experience life or not? When we share the message of Jesus Christ with others, we're sharing the news of abundant life in Christ that God wants for us, that Jesus came to die for, to purchase for us. So the most pro-life thing any of us can ever do is share Christ with others. And Christ transforms minds and values and outlooks. And those transformed people see life and see other people differently now through God's eyes, Lord willing. So the most pro-life thing we can do, guys, and above everything else, we are called to share Christ, the truth of who He is, and what He came to do with others. That's the most pro-life thing we can do. Let me say this too. It's easy to develop an us versus them mentality when we talk about really emotional issues like abortion or euthanasia or cloning, things that strike people where they live. It's highly emotional. We tend to develop an us versus them mentality or thought. And guys, think of this. When Jesus is, is hanging on the cross, having just been tortured and abused, and now bleeding out to death, what does he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Let me just say... When we proceed in Christ's cause for life, we've got to do so as those who've been purchased by the one who said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Guys, we should be humble. We should be prayerful. We should want the conversion of those who disagree with us. This should be our attitude. Christ's call on the cross to those who were wronging Him personally was, Father, forgive them. And we need that kind of humility And that kind of overarching thoughtfulness that God has for those folks who disagree with us, at this point at least in their life, about whose life is a trash and whose life is a treasure. So, humility, prayerfulness, concern, especially, we might say, for those on the other side at this point. Trash or treasure? Treasure or trash. You must decide between the two. What do we value? Who do we value as the body of Christ on the earth? Are we proclaiming the truth of the value of the person from the least to the greatest? And are we doing that in our proclamation of the gospel? Are we living consistently, not just saying we value life, but following through? Do we vote for life? Do we speak for life? Are we serving for life, supporting life, praying for life? Are we following and representing the one who said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Lord Jesus, uh, it's an anomaly, it's an emotional hurdle to get over that you uh, were forgiving the ones who were killing you on the cross. And you call us to have the same kind of forbearance and forgiveness and desire for the best, even in those who harm us, Lord, intentionally. Disagree with us on important issues like life. Uh, Lord, perhaps in no other arena do we need more Your humility and grace than when we're talking to others about such an important issue. And Lord Jesus, I pray that You would declare Your words through us, individually, through this church. Father, that your words of life to us would ring out, not in condemnation, but in hope. Lord, in conviction where that's needed, but again with hopefulness. Lord Jesus, I know that you came to restore all things to yourself and we want to be part of that restoration process. We want you to count us in among those who are for life and Lord, we're asking you to use us in your cause for abundant life. In Jesus' name, amen.